you know, maybe something hap- bad happened there, but it doesn't necessarily, you have to rule all that out, all of it. So Stephen Parasol, you know, I've talked to his sister and there is something about his case that it's, he needs to be brought home. So I'm working with a woman, I'm training with a woman that does historical human remains detection, which is clandestine graves. And so how these dogs alert on, you know, shallow graves or old, old bones. And I'm learning, learning that. So it gives, you know, maybe at some point there's some place that Stephen Parasol, you know, there's a place of interest. I could take my dog out there and use him as a tool. I cannot imagine because, you know, our family member was brought home, but it's that never knowing. And even if it isn't um, Stephen Parasol, maybe I can help another family in another way using my passion, you know, with dogs, my hobby with dogs and my passion to help those that are missing or cold cases. Gloria Crow Bowbirds, and she's on the hunt for a serial killer. This is the second of two episodes with Gloria. If you haven't heard the first, I suggest you go back and listen. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. On a cool September night in Lewiston, a town of nearly 28,000 people along the Snake River in Idaho, three young people went missing from the Lewiston Civic Theater, a community theater in a building originally constructed in 1907 as a Methodist church. The theater was known in the region for producing award-winning musicals and plays and workshops where students could practice reading scripts and performing. The theater attracted many people from the region's rolling green and brown hills and rivers that straddled the borders of Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. 21-year-old Christina Nelson and 18-year-old Jacqueline Brandy Miller, stepsisters who were both students at Lewis Clark State College and who had connections to the theater, were last seen after 9 p.m. leaving Nelson's apartment almost three miles from the theater. Stephen Parcell, a 35-year-old who worked as a janitor at the theater, was last seen by police officer patrolling near the theater and his girlfriend who dropped him off around midnight in order to practice his clarinet and do some laundry. It took the police time to connect the three murders to the theater, and it was more than a year and a half before Nelson and Miller's bodies were found in a field by a 14-year-old teenager who discovered the bodies when he went to retrieve a hat that had fallen off his head, 35 miles away in Kendrick, Idaho. Purcell's body was never found. Both Christina and Brandy were found bound with rope that, as some have said, came from the Lewiston Civic Theater. Kristen, who went by Christy, was Gloria's cousin. In all our coverage of crime, we often talk about the victim, the crime, and their immediate family members, but rarely do we talk about all those secondary victims, their coworkers, their roommates, their friends, and their aunts, uncles, and cousins. What makes Gloria's story somewhat unique is that she's decided to fight back and attempt to solve her cousin's murder. And unlike other similar stories, she has her eye on a particular suspect, the same one that the police have eyed, who knows she's coming for him. Today, we're going to discuss what it's like to lose someone, the many different ways that people can heal from tragedies, and what Gloria has in her mind to offer those who have lost loved ones, those whose loved ones are unidentified or missing. So, you know, the thing that stuck out, Gloria, about what you're saying, you've got you know, multiple short relationships, you've got 
the criminal behavior. You've got the association with these situations. You have behaviors like his wife's asking him to clean the dishes and he instead shoots them. He's like checking off all those, you know, he's got early loss in his life. He's checking off all of those boxes that, you know, from just a clinical mental health perspective that we we would say this person is highly at risk or of being a danger to others. Not to say that everyone who goes through those life experiences do that, but they're like a lot of glaring sort of warning signs. And I know he ends up in Washington by 1979, and that's where we get the first known victim in that area. I was I was wondering, like, in your work, she was 12 years old. That's Christina Lee White. What was Christina like? She was an active little girl. Her best friend was Rose. And that was Voss's girlfriend's daughter. Oh. And that is how that connection was made. She disappeared from 2nd Street, 2nd Avenue, in Asotan, Washington. During the Asotan Fair, she had heat stroke. And... That's Christina... White. That's Christina, yeah. And Rose's brother was home at that time, I spoke with him and he said he was home on that day and he was washing the dogs, Afghan hounds. And he wasn't sure if Voss was home or not. And he remembers sitting, her sitting under the tree in the front yard. Was she waiting for parents? She was waiting. She was waiting for her mom. She had a, a washcloth around her neck. And I believe that, and this is just, Again, my take on what happened is that Voss offered to give her a ride home. Mm. And she, of course, he's an adult. That's her best friend's, you know, mom's boyfriend. You know, why wouldn't you trust him? And so that's how I believe he got her in the car. Mm. And he had a house on Third Street. And that's so he probably, had two houses. He had one he lived in, and then a separate one he owned. Yeah, he was living. Well, he was uh, basically living with his girlfriend Patricia Brennan at the time, and he had another house. He had a house. He owned a home on Third Street in Asotan. So that was. It was like between where Christina White lived and then here's, you know, Voss's house would have been just down the road on third. So that's probably where he took her. Mm. And she's never been found, right? Correct. Wow. And one of the things I had been listening to um, in the Snake River podcast was this, and I think you had talked about this, that Voss later in life was very sort of like active in the community, wrote letters to the editor, and he opposed the draining of a nearby reservoir, right? Yes. Yeah. And and that was an area that that and all of the stuff that's happening in Asotan between these houses, is it like a mile away, two miles away, or very close to each other? You know, maybe at best a half a mile. It is not that far. Um Asotan is not a very big town. Um, it always struck when I first went there, it struck me as the all American town. You have mm. the white steeple church, you have a park, you have the fairgrounds, um, you know, the baseball fields, very Americana. So that not the kind of place you would expect something like that. Absolutely not. not. So here, when you have a 12 year old girl go missing, that, and especially in 1979, okay, times have definitely changed and people's views of, of things have changed. But in 1979, very quiet little town, you know, safe for your kids to play in. Don't have to worry about locking your doors. And then all of a sudden a child disappears and she is never found. You know, her parents, um, I met Betty White 
super, super nice woman. Um, breaks my heart that um, she never knew what happened to her daughter. I'm sure she, she does now. I'm, you know, I'm sure there's up there in heaven and, and, you know, but she, and she is the one that, that gave me the name, but mm. they were also, you know, they had to be looked at. They were suspect. And that's so hard on families always first. And that's one of the toughest things that yeah. often before they're looking for another suspect, they're coming after you. And I think that sometimes while people know they have to be cleared, it starts the relationship of law enforcement quite poorly. It does. But you know, if you, you, ha it's very, very hard on the family members, but if you have nothing to hide, just get through it, plug through it. And they did. She did tell me that, that Lance Voss was, he was right there in her face. He wanted to be part of the search. During the search? Yeah. Oh. He had a white towel around his neck. Kind of like. Like Christina had around her neck? Yes. Oh, wow. So, so there's probably some belief, like thinking about that picture in Chicago, thinking about the white tile around the neck, there's probably some belief, right? That I think, yes. To stick it in the face of people. You can't tie me to this, but here's a clue. And he has done that throughout the investigations in the Lewiston area. I don't know. He's He was brought in and questioned in... Um, like taunting. What's that? It's almost like taunting. Because yes, he's taunting. He is taunting. Because um, even if, let's say, hypothetically, he wasn't the one to do it, the, the that kind of behavior suggests even just a flippancy toward the victim's families. Yes, and towards human life. Right. Period. Yes. He was questioned in, in North Carolina, uh, Kayla Campbell. I believe that was in December of 2012. That was a drowning victim? Mm -hmm. So. So he's been questioned now in California in that instance. He's been questioned in the Idaho-Washington murders. Wasn't he also questioned in the, um, I don't know if it was the Green River Killer or another Washington serial killer? The, the Spokane uh, River killings. He was questioned in those, and he gave his DNA. He gave blood. Mm -hmm. And then why couldn't that DNA be used? Because he lawyered up and wrote out uh, an agreement, a contract, that that DNA, his blood, would only be used to be tested in those cases. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah, that, that's, that to me is also very telling. What do you have to hide? Why do you not want your DNA in a database if you have never done anything wrong? There was an interesting comment that his first wife told me. She said that he had told her that um, she couldn't get pregnant. He had a low sperm count. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean that you were... And, Again, this is just me probably over-digesting something or overthinking it. Hmm. Uh, does this mean that you could be involved in rapes in the right. Bay Area? And I have looked at those, too. Well, one of the interesting things in listening to everything that you're talking about and all the people who have been willing to talk to you, or, you know, law enforcement, police officers, his family you know, the families of the victims is you may, you must A, have a way with yourself, but B, it's almost like you may know the the victims and the suspect more than the people around them do because you're able to pull together the pieces. That's a, it's a crazy thing to think that you're almost living in the head of a person that you suspect. That's got to be weird. It's got to be strange. Do you ever feel sympathy for him or no, other no, 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 no. I do put myself and, and this again is where you pull away because it's, um, you can never, 
have the mind of a sociopath. You can never, you know, truly think like a person that takes a life. Mm. Um, but yes, I try to look at things the way he would look at them. Would you want this person as a victim? Would you do, do this? Um, you know, just, just different, different things. Yeah. yeah. It gets a little over, it, it gets a little overwhelming. I do think that my background in mental health has helped me process that. And then having, you know, friends that are in the mental health field, you know, I go and debrief, you know? Right. Right. It's gotta be an important thing for, I think anyone who's experienced a loss like this, even if it's solved, but certainly these cases are not solved to have somebody to talk to. Absolutely. In Diane Taylor's case, Mm -hmm. her half sister heard about the documentary being made cold valley or it, it that it had been released and she every so often would you know google her sister's name and that's how she found out about her sister's case being reopened and she reconnected with family members that had not that she had not talked to in decades and so that was actually um a good thing that came out of, out of the darkness. There was some light um, right. that these family members um, reconnected, but. And in, could be brought um, together with these other family members. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Denise, who is Diane Taylor's half sister, uh, she reached out to me and Denise was born two years after Diane Taylor's um, murder. And she was born on the day that Diane Taylor's body was found. Oh, wow. She she was born on August 3rd. And so there were things that happened in Denise's life um, that she didn't understand until she was older, that her parents had not, at least her father had not um, processed Diane's death. Hadn't recovered. Yeah. And that's a part we don't, I think, ever talk about or don't talk about that much which is the idea that like these things happen and we you know we look at the we look at the victim in sort of two dimension we can never really capture people three dimension we look at the suspect but we don't look at all this collateral damage that happens in a family just simply when someone's murdered yeah it and it isn't just you know it's it's the victim's family and then you, of course, have the suspect's family and, you you know, how did this impact them, even though they they may be without guilt, but it's guilt by association. Just it is. Betty White said it had a ripple effect and it does. It, it right. touches so many people on so many levels. And then the grief, Christy's mom, uh, Christy Nelson, my my cousin, I'm in contact with her mother and she still hasn't processed the grief. You know, she thinks about her often. She would, you know, she said she would rather just bury her head and wish this had never, never happened. She, she has a hard time um, dealing with it. Brandy's mother is, she had a hard time accepting it. So yeah, the the family members, yeah, the dynamics are they just could go on and on. That's the there's this saying that, you know, when you bury your parent, you bury them in the ground, but when you bury your child, they're buried in your mother's their mother's heart. And that it doesn't leave you and it's with you. I mean, in maybe in some ways in a good way, but I always think about like that moment where you can no longer remember what their voice sounded like or yeah. have, yeah, it's gotta be hard. It's gotta be hard. What I, one of the things jumping back to Christina White's case and so one of the things that I had heard, and I don't know if this is true or apocryphal or I'm combining things in my mind, but my understanding, so small town, all this happens within half mile of 
of, of, of all these sort of places are a half mile, but then her homework papers were found like three miles away on a farm. And then I remember hearing about this weird incident that didn't happen, like, I mean, happened within a year where this real estate agent had this strange encounter with Voss inside the house. Um, there were a lot of things that, you know, that just sort of stuck out. I was curious, what what about the homework kind of connected connected him? And what, what, what was the incident with the real estate agent? Well, the homework was found in a uh, pasture where uh, Rose kept her horse. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And so, and it, you know, it, it didn't look like it had been out there very long at all. I mean. It was loose papers that would yes, like. Yes. Yes. And there was, you know, there was no sign of the elements destroying it or anything. The real estate woman, she, um, he wanted to show her his house, which was on third. He was getting ready to sell it. And um, he wanted to show her the basement. And um, he was adamant. Oh, I've got to show this to you. And she turned around and she saw something in his hand. Oh. And she asked him, she wanted to see it. And he showed her. And it was like a, you know, round ballast, something like. Like a. Something like a yeah. Yeah. And after he showed her, he didn't, you know, he asked her how many people know you're here with me. And she said the whole office. And then he didn't want to show her the basement anymore. So she was probably very lucky to have turned around and had seen that he had something in his hand. And yeah. And she was, she was able to sort of get out. And I know, and tell me if my timing's right. Something probably one of the most striking things that I've heard about the case probably happened soon after that. But there was, um, I'm not going to get it right, but there was an ad in the local newspaper, like the Lewiston Tribune or Lewiston Morning Tribune, that had his phone number on it that said something like, it was an advertisement for a dog, right? Yes, yes. Afghan bitch, three years old or something like that. Yeah. What was was weird about that? It had Christina White's name in it. The way it was written out, you could see Christina Christina White's name. That was something that um, Brandon Shrad that is doing the Snake River Killer podcast had discovered. And that so and that leads you down another another rabbit hole. Because well, one of the weird things for me about that ad, and I, I may not have gotten to the episode where you guys dig really deep into that one, but one of the weird things about that ad to me was that it talked about like a Spain fee, right? And and you're saying and all that were the name. Yeah, but but rarely with Afghan hounds do you ever spay them. And I, I didn't realize he had a dog that was Afghan hound. So, so I found it kind of odd that you would put an ad in like, but maybe there was a hidden message in it. Maybe that was. He did point. have a Norwegian elk hound. He's, and that again is interesting too, because of he has Scandinavian um, ancestry, but he, he did have, a husky, which they look like little husky dogs, but the 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 way he wrote it out, a long you know a lost brown husky type dog, and then he gave his phone number, and that's how that ad was found. He did several ads and and editorials through the Tribune that felt like that had messages. Could you? I think there's probably some sort of message in in those ads or in those um, editorials, especially with the lower granite reservoir. When you go up to the area 
That's the reservoir he didn't want drained. Right. Yeah, you were saying when you go up to there. When you go up there, you'll see when your boot's on the ground, it gives you a whole new perspective of the cases, the vastness Mm. of the area. Um, Where do you go and look? It's, yeah, the clues. And this goes back to a theory that perhaps because he was doing rally car races, that he was leaving clues and breadcrumbs, so to say, as to where his next vic, where he put victims. Oh, that they were built into the, because in rally car racing, you have these messages that you put and other things like that. You have symbols, you have. So if you went out like he, he was adamant about Christina White having a Soton 128 on her license plate. Well, that was never mentioned any, any law enforcement reports or, you know, family members, you know, her, her brother and sister don't remember that. So if you're looking at it and you look at it on a map, uh, 128 is the, it's the road, the highway that goes up and over the Red Wolf Bridge over there. And there's and that's also, where Christina David was found. Right. And you can also take it um, over to um, the uh, Lower Granite Dam Reservoir. Oh, wow. Could you tell us a little bit about, um, let's say, Christina David and what happened at the funeral? I mean, at the, excuse me, what happened at the theater? Because I know that there, there's there's some some sort of like, Christina David is the loosest connection in terms of the cases, but I, I'm always curious about her and curious about the people who are in the theater and what happened in that theater that night. Well, Chris, Kristen David, I'm in touch with her sister and Kristen David was politically active. She was, which so was boss. Um, she was a seamstress at the um, Lewiston Theater, oh. um, which so was Patricia, boss's wife. Yeah. Well, at the time it would have been, no, it was his, it, it was his wife. After Kristen, Kristen David, after her body was discovered, I believe he was married to Patricia on July 28th. Anyway, there are connections um, that link her to boss possibly knowing who she is. But then again, you're back to the MO, which is dismemberment, which is that that's a whole different level. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And different than what happened with Brandon. Although you have two, two people that haven't been found. So, right. And so therefore it's, you know, you don't know, maybe this is something he likes to do. So, Kristen David, they've looked at other suspects, Harry Hantman being one of them. Mm. Um, Serial killer. Yes. So I always, I always keep her though in with, you know, it's the, the, the five victims there. She's in your heart too, regardless. She is. She is. It's like, you know, you're traveling so far on this journey. You can't just say, nope, I'm not going to look at that anymore. No, I'm going to advocate for her as much as I possibly can. I was actually talking to a retired FBI not too recently, and I brought up like dismemberment and that all the weird things that I have interests in. And one of the things they said to me was really interesting. Like dismemberment can be a part of the fantasy. It can be a part of the method, but it just might also simply be convenience in some cases as the best way to get rid of body so that that always struck me that some of these things some of the things that motivate killers are very different than anything we could imagine and i and i understand being the best way to dispose of a body because you know a body is dead weight and there there is that's your body takes on an extra you know amount of weight to it when you pass and uh so the the dismemberment is way of disposing yes I always thought that um, in Kristen David's case, it might have been like a, you know, you've got the 4th of July coming up, uh, a shock factor, you know, because just 
dismemberment does hold that, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that happens in 81, right? And then, Correct. Then I think the theater, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I'd love to hear more about what happened on that night, happens in 82. But I was going to ask you, what was the town like during that time? It must have been absolute panic. You find one college student who's cut up in bags underneath a bridge. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, within a relatively short period of time, I imagine there weren't that many murders. You have two college students and a 30 year old man just disappear. What do you, do you, have you gotten any insight from people about what it was like then or from your family members about what it was It was, was like? so, It was something that impacted their lives. From the people I have talked to, they never, they never thought something like that would happen in that town, you know, because it is a very, it's not as small, it's, you know, it's grown substantially, but you don't think about murder children going missing or any of, any of that. And they were afraid, you know, a few of them said, yes, I was, I was afraid and, and no, I wouldn't let my children out. I wanted to know where they, they were. And, um, so it, it, yeah, you're, you're scared. You're, people are scared. I think it changed the, the tone of how you lived in that area. You started locking your doors. You started paying attention. Yeah. And so I, many, so many of those murders around that time, kind of like, I think for so many Americans just broke our understanding kind of like broke the shell that we used to sort of understand the world. We didn't, we, we thought not our neighborhoods, like, or not. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's what impacted me. You know, it had my cousin, Christy, it's like, Oh my God, you know, somebody took her life. Somebody murdered her. My Uh, parents lived in the Washington DC area when Sheila and Catherine Loyne disappeared from, it was like the white, white Oak mall, I think in Montgomery County. And I remember years later, I was in my thirties and my dad told me that it changed the way we were raised, you know? And I, I never really thought what kind of impact that for even people who didn't know the victims and, you know, he said, you know, you were all, all on a shorter leash. Our doors locked. The way we lived and interacted with our neighbors was complete. That sort of like everything changed for for the victims' families and the community when something like this happens. I know when I see children or I see you know young adults out at dusk. You know, there's there's nobody watching them. It it puts me on alert. Um, mm. It's like there are monsters out there. You, you, they may not look like monsters, but they are truly monsters. And, um, it kind of, it makes me sick to my stomach when I see that. It's like, put your phone down, you know, get those earbuds out. You got to be more alert and aware of what, you know, what's around you. How do you think, how do you think it changed your parents or the way that you were raised? I was already, you know, and, you know, an adult, Mm. Um, my sister, who is four years younger than I am, my mom and my grandmother took, they wanted to know where, where she was at. They were more vigilant and I became more vigilant of what she was doing. It's like, if you don't know this person, you don't go with this person. Mm. Um, cause she's, there's a, a sense of innocence to, to my sister as there is with, you know, lots of other people, but they only see the good in people. And, um, you know, I worried about that. Yeah. I can only imagine. So what was it? I guess this brings us to that night at the theater. What is it that happened? I know you've, you've sort of intimated and hinted that this is probably the most significant connection. Oh, well, I guess more than white Christina White's disappearance in this one is the most significant connection. But what happened at the the, the theater 
I guess that was September 14th, 1982. It was September 12th, 1982. And Stephen Parasol had been working on a set with, with Lance Voss. And uh, Stephen went to a party that was being held at Tomato Brothers, at, which is in Clarkson, Washington. And Voss at the time, um, he went down to the Red Baron Pizza. And um, he said that he watched the movie The Fog and that it got over at midnight, which it didn't. It got over at 11. Was the um, Red Baron close to the theater? Yes, it is. Yeah, the Red, the Red Baron Pizza is probably, I would say, half a mile, three quarters of a mile down the hill. Uh, from the Lewiston Civic Theater. My cousin Christy lived, oh, I would say probably four blocks or more away from the Lewiston Theater. But she had left a note that she was going to the store. And Mm -hmm. so it's a theory. We walked the way they might have walked, Christy and Brandy, that they crossed paths with um, boss near the Red Baron Pizza because they had to pass by there to get to Safeway. And so they, and because they all knew each other. Right. They, Christy had hung some artwork up at the theater. Brandy was always around uh, Christy. Uh, Christy had worked as a janitor at the theater. So Voss had been doing plays there for quite some time. So that's probably how their paths crossed. That's how she knew Stephen Parasol. My cousin knew Stephen Parasol through the theater. And so it's it's theory that they crossed paths down the road and he might have persuaded them to get in the car so he could take them up to the theater so he could, you know, show them or tell them the set and blah, blah, you know, what he'd been doing. And... Um, they probably went with him because, you know, they knew him. And um, Stephen Parasol was dropped off by his girlfriend. And it was witnessed by his girlfriend, a couple other friends, and law enforcement at Lewiston that um, he went into the theater and never came out. And Voss um, puts himself in the theater. He's, you know, he said that he went there after having um, watched The Fog and having a beer, he went back to the theater. He started working on the sets. He was up in the rafters. He fell. He hurt his back. And he went and laid down in what's called the green room there. And the acoustics in that theater, if you're walking in, you can't not hear somebody, especially if they're, you know, playing a clarinet or they're doing laundry because the room that he said he laid down in is right there where Stephen Parasol would have been doing his laundry. So, so did, have you been in the theater yourself? Yes. Okay. I've been in there a few times. You can't go in there. It's been condemned. Mm. Uh, What do you, what what do you do when you go there? probably going to sound corny. I just, I look around, I feel, um, Mm. listen to your gut. Um, Mm. and then I also, every time I've gone to, to Lewiston, even though now I can't, you can't get into the theater. Um, I always go there and I sit on the back steps and there's a green door and off to the, to the right of that is, some windows that are like almost ground level, but I go there and I sit and I ask the universe if I'm, if show me, if I'm meant to see something, please show me. And I ground myself there. Is it strange to be in the place where your cousin may have died? Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. You know, it's you, you just know that, this is the last place that she drew a breath. This is the last place where her energy was her, her energy, Brandy's energy, Stephen. And it's, 
it had, yeah, I, every time I go there, I go and sit and I ask for a sign. What, where am I supposed to look? What am I supposed to do? You know, kind of, kind of show me, show me universe what it needs to be done. I have gone out to where Stephen and, or excuse me, where Christy and Brandy, their bodies were found and there's nothing there. There's residential housing that's being put up there, but I don't feel them like you do at the theater. The theater. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was something right that connected the place that they were found that connected um, them to the theater. When she went, when they went missing, there was some road work that was being done on highway three outside of Kendrick. And um, you can see where the road used to be, and then they raised it up. So that route, though, is a route that he would have taken when he worked for Frito-Lay. Yeah, he could have gone up, up that route and then over and into Moscow. And... I've traveled those routes just, you know, just to see the timing, just to see what it looks like. Um, you know, one of the weirdest things about all the locations that you're talking about, and it just dawned on me that in the recent case from last year with the four students at the University of Idaho who were who were murdered in their home, you know, the suspect in that case traveled to like Clarkston, it just dawned on me and traveled to Lewiston afterwards. And I remember reading the probable cause affidavit mentions him crossing the red crossing bridge mentions him being in the area. I think it's Janice where Christina David was last found. Uh, She was a student at the university of Idaho. Was that, triggering for you guys at all it's actually i was contacted uh by a few people they wanted to know if uh boss was in the area it's like no but it's also makes me wonder whether the suspect was following his oh i can i can guarantee you he was following it he um he will listen to any yeah, he, he has his, his finger on the pulse over there as to what's going on. That kind of brings me to the point of when he moved um, in 1998, 1999, um, something, I believe, spooked him. Mm. And part of that is the, the lower granite dam. I believe they were doing some work on that. They were expanding a place called Modi Park. They were cleaning it up. I've been there. I took my dog in there. And is that's in Washington? Or- uh, it's in Idaho. Both actually the Lower Granite Lake Reservoir is in Washington, I believe. Mm-hmm. It is. And so I have, to, well, I have to think because it's so close. But I think something something triggered him because he left a house that he was such a, he bragged about pulled up roots and went to live in an apartment in Charlotte, North Carolina and took a job as a car salesman. Mm, So he went without a job. Yeah. He, he found a job online. I spoke with Patricia Brennan's uh, father. His wife's father. Okay. And he was the one that told me, yes, he, he found the job on the internet, pulled roots and left. Hmm. And so why would you leave, you know, I mean, you've taunted the police, you're laughing at him. Did the police find something that spooked you? Did something in the area get too close to where you put the bodies spook hmm. you? You know, something, I feel something spooked him. So you mentioned Patricia Brennan's dad. Do you, in communicating with him, do you view uh, the suspect's family members as victims too? Do I consider them as victims? Yeah, to some That's extent. A, in a way, yes. Mm-hmm. 
And in a way, no, because I feel that they might possibly know something, at least the stepson, Clint, and he's too afraid to say anything. Rose, honestly, I, I don't think she knows anything. She was surprised to hear about others, um, mm. other victims. Detective Jackie Nichols and I went up there and met with her. I want to say it was in 2011. Very simple woman, probably has Asperger's or autism, somewhere on the spectrum, higher functioning, uh, but did not seem to be a malicious person. Um, invited her or invited us into her home, which was a very, it was very um, simple. You know, it wasn't what you would expect Walter Brennan's, you know, great granddaughter to be living in. I did notice when I was in, in the home that there weren't any pictures of Patricia or Voss, but her, I would say she's, I would say she was a, a victim of, of not being able to be around her mother, you know, because of, because of Voss. She was sent off to live at the Lightning Creek Ranch up in Enterprise, Oregon. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. Do I think Patricia's a victim? No. I think she knows things and she has become complicit. Yeah. Um, I had spoke with her. I spoke with her probably 10 years ago. And I just, I want to hear Voss's side of the story. I want to hear it. I want to, I want to so ask you, him you'd sit down. You'd sit down and look, you'd sit down and talk to him. Yeah. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Have you thought about what, thought about what that would be like? Um, yes. I have questions that I would ask. It would be, I would, you know, certain things need to be cleared up. I mean, you know, if you're innocent, let's hear why you're innocent. You won't do anything to uh, help prove your innocence, um, you know, such as taking a lie detector test, such as maybe giving your DNA um, you've gone to great lengths to cover that, you know, make sure that that is never used. You know, Jason, I, I just, I, I don't know. And again, you go back to the anger. Yeah. I was going to say like what I cannot fathom is, you know, if he denied it or if he stuck it in your face, like how would you possibly control that anger? It we're back to, I better channel it in a way that will be beneficial for the victims. I think it's, it's about putting them first. Yes. Yes. And then when it's all over and done, you can go and scream someplace, uh, throw rocks, break glass, whatever you have to do to, to get that out. But I do want to hear though, his side of the story. I, I've torn his life apart. I have thrown him under the bus every possible chance I get. And it's not just, you know, I'm not doing this to be malicious. I am not. This is more like public awareness sort of thing that these people are around you. And I, I want answers. I want answers. I want justice. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense to me. I was, um, I was just thinking about what do you think? And I think this could be instructive to sort of like, anyone in this situation because you know there's a lot of circumstantial evidence here a lot of things pointing in his directions what do you what do you think that it's going to take to to solve solve the case i think it will take i i don't i've seen cases where they they prosecute um without a body but I do believe it'll take some sort of forensic evidence to bring him in. There is a whole load of circumstantial evidence. Um, I don't know if there are plans to go and talk to him about all this circumstantial evidence that keeps, you know, piling up. And like I said, the last time I know he was spoke to was about Kayla Campbell 
in North Carolina and her drowning death and, and because she lived in close proximity to him. And, and that was a young woman who yeah, she went was missing on a bike too. Yeah, went. on a bicycle. Same neighborhood, right? Mental yes. Health, yes. I was going to ask you another question. Like, what lessons do you think from your experience, either on an emotional, intellectual, or other level, do you think you could, I don't know, pass on to to others whose loved ones' cases are cold or to investigators who find themselves in similar situations? Well, again, if, if you are a family member or friend of a victim, educate yourself and advocate for that person. Be their voice, the best voice that they could have. And if you're in law enforcement, I guess take some trust and, you know, use the, the help that, you know, they want to give. I know that some information about cases cannot be given out. But you can give, you know, basic stuff and, you know, they only have so much time that they can spend on cold cases and they only have so much money that they can spend on cold cases. And that includes testing, forensic testing and such as that. And when it comes to small counties, such as um, Asotan County, where Detective Jackie Nichols works, one test, one test and you have blown your whole uh, budget for forensic testing for the year. Yeah, we think of police as like having unlimited budgets. People do, and they they don't. There are budget lines, and and this is what you use this money for, and this is how much time you can spend on these cases, and blah, blah, blah. And that's just the way the system is set up. But if you're, like I said, if you're a family member or friend and you think that you can help, by all means, contact them. Keep your emotions in check. Do not lose your cool. Do not start crying. Do not get emotional because that's not going to help in any way. It is not going to, you know, you will shut. And I don't mean this in a bad way. They, You will shut law enforcement down. They don't have time. Because you know? then it becomes something else. I remember I was just thinking about like all the frustrations that must come with like trying to solve something like this, particularly when you have a suspect. And I remember talking to a detective who was in Baltimore and he was working on a cold case. And I said to him, like, how do you do it? I was looking at all the frustrations and rabbit holes and, and disappointments and then retrenching and going back again. And he turned to me and he looked at me dead in the eyes and said, because I speak for the dead, that's my job. Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, that was so powerful. And, and it sounds like that motivates you too. It does. It abs- I totally understand what he is saying. Um, it does. They cannot talk anymore. They, they, they're gone. So if you're going to advocate for them, be the best you can be, be the best voice. Think before you speak, you know, that's definitely come into play. Right, right. I'm right now, I'm using a resource that is a different sort of resource to learn from. Um, I'm in touch with a forensic psychologist. She interviewed the toolbox killers. Oh, yeah. And, and she has been doing research for over 10 years with on San Quentin death row. So toolbox killers, were they the ones who they were like two rapists and serial killers that did they work together? They were. Yes. Yes, they did. They did work together. So like I said, you can never, you, you will never have the mind of a serial killer. You will never have the mind of a sociopath. You can take it so far. And then because you're not hardwired that way, you don't know how to think like that. Um, it becomes too dark and, and not natural. So anyway, I have um, a friend and she has um, put me in contact with serial killers on death row. 
in San Quentin. Now, death row no longer exists in California on death row. So they're at least after, I think it's October 1st, it won't exist anymore. So anyway, I'm in touch with uh, serial killers and I've been talking to them. And I don't think I would be able to, to do, well, I probably could, but with having mental health backgrounds, it's helped me, you know, okay, this is what I'm doing now and I'm going to walk away from it and I'm going to journal and I'm going to process this because again, it's hard to, you know, talk to somebody that's taken a life or try to understand why they took a life or to even understand why they're hardwired this way. But I get what you're saying. It's almost like for some of us, we can go into an almost clinical mode. Yes. We're hearing really horrible things. Yes. I definitely put on my mental health hat. Well, because you've got to be able to compartmentalize when you're doing something like this, or it will take over your entire life and your every emotion and thought. Yes. Yeah. Probably would be no time for rescuing animals. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I do when I, I visit my animals when it's getting too intense. But I've talked to these these people and I'm getting I'm pulling away some really good insight. One of them is he has been in for 30 years. He was the youngest person put on death row um, in California, and he has been housed, or he was housed, with uh, Ramirez, the Night Stalker. And so in talking to him, one of the things he said to me, because I've always thought Stephen Parasol was collateral damage, wrong time, wrong place. Yeah, showed up and the murder was ongoing. And yes. So this particular inmate said to me, he said, he won't be in his cemetery, not in my cemetery. Mm. And I'd never heard that term before. I was like, not in your cemetery. He said, no, you, you want to go the opposite direction or somewhere where, you know, his fantasy would not be interrupted. He, he. So it's almost like this blemish on his fantasy that you want to get it away from. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, hearing that it was like, okay, now, not that it gives you another, because it's again, the area is so vast, but where could I go? That's the, you know, the exact opposite of this. And where have I heard that he could possibly be? And does this, you know, tie into road rally races and the clues that were already left? Or almost possibly a place he would never go. Possibly, yes. A place that maybe, you know, he might check every so often, but it's not on his regular route of, you know, going places or seeing. Anyway, so that hearing something like that, and then, you know, the fantasies, um, how they process um, mm-hmm. what they've done. They play games. There's one in there that uh, he's probably, I want to say is he's probably responsible for at least um, eight deaths of people. Um, but one of his victims, the the head was never recovered. So he says that he put it in water and put a cinder block over the top of, of the skull. Hmm. And he's convinced that nobody will ever, ever find this. So it becomes a game, you know? Uh, um, I'm just curious about one thing, Gloria, as sort of like wrap up. I was thinking in some levels, this is like a part of your healing process and not everyone is going to have the fortitude to go into the dark places that you've gone or even to search in the proximity or even, you know, do something like go back to the theater. What recommendation would you have for other people who don't have that, but still need to heal? You read as much as you can. You know, take in as much as you can, but always be aware of what your breaking point is. 
it could be part of my healing process to, to process my grief. Um, I have an incredible thirst um, for knowledge. That could be part of it. But for those out there that, that are trying to learn more or why, um, I would say read. I would say, you know, um, watch documentaries. But again, if it's starting to get to you, turn it off. You don't need that self-damage. You really, really don't. Because it's almost like letting the killer haunt you long mm-hmm. after you committed mm-hmm. their crime. One of the things that I'm also doing is I'm training a cadaver dog. Oh, neat. And I never thought that I would, you know, I, I have a love for animals. I have a love for dogs. But it's also, it gives you knowledge as to how law enforcement, you know, interprets those, you know, what the dogs find. Mm-hmm. Um, how they go about using those dogs combines your two hobbies. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know it's a hobby. Facing well, serial killers and dogs. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it it's educational because you say like a dog, you have a dog out, and let's just say for for just whatever you know, just theoretically, the dog goes to the Lewiston Civic Theater. Now, just to clear everything up, the, there has been a dog at the Lewiston Civic Theater. Jackie took a cadaver dog through there, her, da- her cadaver dog that she trained. But say like you're, you're just, you're out there and you're outside and the dog, you know, takes an interest um, in an area. That doesn't mean that something, you know, awful happened there. It could be so many different reasons that the dog is choosing to take interest. It could be somebody at one time bled there. It could be, you know, maybe something bad happened there, but it doesn't necessarily, you have to rule all that out, all of it. So I, right now, Stephen Parasol you know, I've talked to his sister and there is something about his case that it's, you know, he needs to be brought home. So mm. I'm working with a woman, I'm training with a woman that does historical human remains detection, which is clandestine graves. And so how these dogs alert on, you know, shallow graves or old, old bones and I'm learning, learning that. So it gives, um, you know, maybe at some point there's some place that Stephen Parasol, you know, there's a place of interest. You, I could take my dog out there and use him as a tool and help bring him home. Yes, him. yes. Yeah. I cannot imagine because you know our family member was brought home, but it's that never knowing that you know, and even if it isn't. Um, you know, Stephen Parasol, maybe I can help another family in another way using my passion, you know, with dogs, my hobby with dogs and my passion to help those that are missing or cold cases. So, yeah, I wanted to go ahead and I appreciate the conversation. It's been, I mean, so powerful for me I, on, on a number of levels, one, obviously, my interest in the case, but I think, two, so rarely get to hear from voices like yours for the, you know, the people who are the family members or the, the other people who are impacted by this. And often when we do get to hear about it, it's because some tragedy has befallen them as well we don't often get to hear sort of a more sort of powerful and positive story and i love the idea of you being able to you know not just pursue this case but take what you have to go to go help other people so i wanted to ask you just for some closing thoughts and one thing i'm just very curious about is what outcome would you like to come out of all of this? Uh, if it, boy, if you're talking about, you know, the cases uh, being solved, Anything. that would be wonderful. You know, 
but maybe somebody hearing this will go, okay, um, I can do this. I can help in, in, in some way. I hope that makes sense. I, you know, an outcome though, the perfect outcome would be for Lance Foss to be arrested um, or at least questioned, you know, and yeah. for those that are missing to be brought home in these cases, such as Christina White and Stephen Parasol. Right. That makes so much sense. Well, thanks again for joining me, Gloria. I really, 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 really appreciate all this time you've generously given. My hope is that one, you know, people will hear this and if anyone knows anything about these people or these cases or, you know, they may be able to contribute. But I also hope that other people who are going through similar things, similar loss, learn something. And it, the loss doesn't just have, it doesn't have to be a murder, but learn something about how you've channeled kind of your pain and your anger into something good. Because I think that there's something all of us uh, could learn from that. Yes, I, I do believe so. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook. We'll see you all again next week.